3: What do you? What do we begin with?
1: I was going to begin with, are we going to do this?
3: <laughs> yeah, we can do this. All right. All right, so we're going to do this? Yeah,
1: we're going to do this. We're going
3: to fucking do this. Yes. All right, welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. Thank you very much for supporting us. Thank you very much for listening to our series on the Ramones, on suicide, on the Damned, and on the Stooges. And now we are on to the next. We are now halfway... Yes. into our series. This is long from being over, people. My name's Marcus Parks.
1: I'm Carolina Hidalgo.
3: Let's get into it. Now, oftentimes, some horror movie fans who don't actually make horror content assume that the people involved in the industry need to spend every fucking moment of their waking life bathed in blood and playing with bones in order to be authentic.
1: That's ridiculous. It
3: is ridiculous.
1: (laughs) Yes. Can you move that boat aside? <laughs> we are surrounded by boats and blood stains, <laughs> so we don't do that.
3: But from what I've been able to gather in the short time I've been privileged to be at least on the fringes of the horror community, the people who you would assume are gore crazed maniacs are, for the most part, terribly normal people in their day to day.
1: Yeah, I mean, everyone needs a job.
3: <laughs> exactly, it's a job.
1: And everyone has a mom. So you know that's
3: Case in Point is the band that was the first to inject the world of horror directly into the genre of punk. More jocks than goths in some ways. <laughs> Goth <Goth-jack>. jocks. <laughs> <Gawks. laughs> <laughs> this band quite purposefully has among the most impenetrable of histories, perhaps to maintain that illusion of blood and bone. And although they were the first band to do punk splatter exploitation style, they were by no means the first band to give rock music a horrific twist, even if that marriage started off far more playfully than our band today ever was. Back in the 60s, horror first poked into the realm of pop in the most innocent of ways. Although it was innocent and wholesome as it was, it's hard to imagine the band we're talking about today would exist in the same form with our good old Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Kicker 5.
4: I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the match. He did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. He did the match. It caught on in a flash He
5: did the mash. He did the monster From my laboratory in the castle east what?
4: To the master bedroom where the vampire's peace. The girls all came from their humble abode what? To get a jolt from my electrode They did the mask. They did the monster mash. The monster mask It was a graveyard smash They did the mask It got on in a
3: few songs in this world can make me as happy as Monster Mash.
1: Yeah, I try to dance to it, but I always like, look like someone's mom when I do it.
3: <laughs> Come on, kids. Come on, joint. No, no. Right. Oh, it's such a wonderful tale of music industry malfeasance. <laughs> <laughs> it's now the mash. Fuck, it's now the mash. God damn it. Now, one could argue. <laughs> you know what it's about
1: yes i know what it's you about.
3: know exactly what it's about yes. yeah yeah it's the crypt kicker in,
1: in case i don't know let's just say hypothetically <laughs> what what is it
3: about the dracula came up with a dance and then the crypt kicker five they took it it's now the match she said whatever happened to my transylvania twist It's now the mash. (laughs) (laughs) And then Drac cuts his losses and says, all right, yeah, I guess I'm in the fucking Crip Kicker 5 now. Uh, And then he eventually learns to accept his fate. Oh, good. Yeah, which is an important lesson for all the musicians out there. (laughs) No one could argue that the biggest horror rock act of the 70s was Alice Cooper. And while his stage show with all the guillotines and snakes definitely had a horror flavor... Horror itself wasn't his main focus. Now, of course, there were plenty of creepy songs in the early days of his career, like Black Juju, Dead Babies, Killer, and the aforementioned Ballad of Dwight Fry, which was one of Joey Ramone's favorite songs. And that was a song that was about an actor named Dwight Fry, who was in a lot of old horror movies. And Alice Cooper actually recorded that song in a straight jacket, worked for seven straight hours until it was done to get the feeling of constriction.
1: You see, that's not normal. <laughs> that's amazingly not normal.
3: But. Cooper's biggest hits were all about teenage angst. Songs like No More Mr. Nice Guy, I'm 18, School's Out. Songs that are a lot more home in like a teen melodrama than The Hills Have Eyes. In other words you could be an Alice Cooper fan and bypass the horror altogether.
1: Yeah like so do you come to Milwaukee often? (laughs) Like that?
3: Ah, Miliwake, the good land.
1: (laughs) I was not aware of that.
3: Then you had similarly theatrical bands like Kiss, who definitely had an image that conveyed something monstrous, or at least something monstrous by the standards of 1970s parents. There's not a lot monstrous about Kitty Cat Man playing the drums, but
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're in
3: costume. Yeah, they're in costume, yeah, but Gene Simmons, yeah, I and mean, with the big tongue and the fire and the blood and all that, it appears to be monstrous as they're singing about Detroit Rock City and Deuce and I was made for loving you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but the band we're going to be talking about over the next couple of episodes did horror better than anyone. A band who reached into the TV sets and movie theaters of their adolescence and distilled the bloody essence of of trashy, slashy, gory horror. Yes. Now, nobody is going to argue that the men involved in this band are what you might call, quote-unquote, progressive. (laughs) Ah. Oh, no. In fact, some of you listening uh, might not even want to be in the same fucking room as some of these dudes
1: that's true I've seen a lot of interviews throughout the years when they're younger even when they're older and I'm just you know the way I'm gonna just treat it as it's like uh, it's like our old super Tommy you know oh that's just Tommy you know that's just I still wave at him you know hi Tommy how you doing but yes yes I understand we're being invaded by these guys (laughs) (laughs) what What does that even mean? Like, you know, you just kind of just wave it. Yeah,
3: you wave it off. Yeah. Regardless of the personal opinions and beliefs of the men who founded this band, it cannot be denied that the music they made and the style they created has permanently made its mark on music and is therefore essential to the story of punk. See, when it came to making primal, raw, down in the rotten, gore-infested dungeons of violence punk rock music on par with the best of horror exploitation flicks, nobody did it better than the Misfits. (laughs) I know we've already played uh, that song when we were talking about the Misfits in our damn series, but fuck, it just encapsulates the Misfits. Like, it really does just give you everything that you want when it comes to that fucking horror punk. But even outside of being the originators of that genre, the Misfits also embody the spirit of another important punk ethos, when no one would take a chance on them. They took a chance on themselves and made their mark on the world with a dogged attitude and uncompromising vision that personified the DIY spirit. And the Misfits are famously private. Some might even say to the point of being overly litigious about it.
1: Some might say.
3: (laughs) But one author was able to wrest the story of the Misfits from the depths of punk past, and it's his book we'll be using as our main source for this story. The book is This Music Leaves Stains by James Green Jr. And if you want to know the full story of the greatest horror rock band of all time, Green has done a highly respectable job of bringing us the closest anyone can get to the truth.
1: That's true. He did a great job putting together a story of a band that has a history that's nearly impossible to tell <laughs> unless Glenn, Jerry and Doyle sit down at a Starbucks with a laptop and get cracking. It's kind of impossible. And and it's true. I mean, we picked a hard topic, especially because, you know, there's a lot of debate. On he said, she said, well, he said, he said. Yes. <laughs> a lot of different versions of different accounts of stories, you know, the huge. Mm-hmm. And the band members, you know, and, as well as some fans, can be a little bit uh, opinionated <laughs> and Prick- prickly, <laughs> passionately. <laughs> Uh, passionately (laughs) opinionated (laughs) and protective of course Uh, but the same thing can be said about k-pop fans so this is just a fandom
3: (laughs) it's a fandom i mean it's it's funny about misfits fandom it's we were talking about it's like you said it's like star wars fandom you know people identify themselves as misfits fans that's who they are you know first and foremost hi my name's ed i'm a misfits fan Th- Hi,
1: my name is Carolina. I'm a trekkie.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You see how this
1: goes. Yeah. I mean, like it's a, it's a way to identify yourself, I guess.
3: It's a way to identify yourself, and you know, and fandoms when people identify themselves so strongly and so closely with the art being made, they tend to be very defensive about it, and they tend to be very well, I don't know if defensive is the right word. They tend to be enormously protective yes. over it, and I get that. I totally get being protective over the thing that brings you so much joy uh, and gets you through your fucking day. And in fact, Danzig sa- himself said that, you know, like that is that is what gives him the most joy with the Misfits over the years and with his music. He said that, you know, if it helps someone get through an hour or two, if it helps them for- beg- forget about their problems for a couple hours, uh, then he's done his job. And he said, it's very nice.
1: Yes, that's the point. I mean, even though there there is a lot of information that's a little bit muddled, yeah. You know, a little bit confusing. Maybe that's also the point. <laughs> <laughs> and also there's like loads of other uh, sources that you could check out uh, out there uh, that we used actually to put together You know, this whole series. Like Misery Obscura, the, mm-hmm. the photography of Yir Vaughn. It's great. Uh, scream With Me, The Enduring... The Enduring Legacy of the Misfits by Tom Bedrover Rich. <laughs> I live in a Polish neighborhood and I don't even know how to say that. And Jeremy Dean. And uh, there's also American Hardcore. There's a lot of really fun stories on. Just American hardcore scene including The Misfits of course uh, by Stephen Blush and lots of fanzines which are as reliable as you want them to be. <laughs> <laughs> you know ugly things touch and go MisfitCentral.com
3: Yeah Misfit Central is huge.
1: Yeah and then several interviews uh, YouTube uh, channels like th- there's just so much to go through and, and I seriously I, I combed through this for weeks I got I made myself sick.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you really did we had to take a <laughs> bit of a break because you got fucking deathly ill
1: yeah it was just so much so much stuff so many opinions in my head i did i lost it
3: but uh, you know that i guess what we're trying to say is that you know like we love the misfits we love the music uh but you know if you're a misfits fan and if there's a couple of things that we say that you might be like that's not right that's not the way it happened We're doing the best we can because there are five different people that say that it happened five different ways.
1: So we'll just say who said it. Yeah,
3: (laughs) yeah, we'll just tell you. You know what?
1: If it's true or not, print the legend.
3: (laughs) Print the legend. And honestly, none of it really has any bearing on how fucking good this music really is. And that's really what it's about is just how good these fucking songs are.
1: Yeah, let's not lose sight of uh, what we're doing here. We're doing a punk series. Yeah, I, we're spanning uh, all of punk music for, for the ba- the ten bands that we're doing. So this is this is just one part of it.
3: This is just one part of it, and this is the punk part of it. So you know, like if you're, I, I'll I'm gonna go ahead and tell you right now, if you're listening to this for a deep dive on Sam Hain,
1: you should wait till we do that later
3: <laughs> in another series. Yeah, you should wait until like the metal series, Like exactly. If we end, if we ever end up doing that, like that, uh, because you know Sam Hain's Sam Hain and the Misfits are the Misfits two different things right now if you're a misfits fan of any level the first person to come to mind when you think of the band is most likely the original lead singer glenn danzig and there's no denying that this band was danzig's baby at least creatively born glenn Anzolone in lodi new jersey mm-hmm. the future danzig grew up on a steady diet of marvel comics and horror movies Worshipping anti-heroes like Magneto and Namor the Submariner. And it's Submariner, it's not Submariner. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) While also digesting movies like George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Ooh,
1: good choice.
3: Great choice.
1: Yeah, he was also a football player.
3: Yeah, they were all football players. Yeah, it's
1: like everyone played football, like you played football. I played football, yeah. It made sense, like he was just a neighborhood guy. Uh, His old school friends said that he took himself very seriously. You yeah. know, especially his music, but he was also said to be very nice and humble, it's and, and hardworking, who took himself very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe there's a little bit of a temperament, especially being an Italian guy from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I mean. Come on, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and also and also being uh, he's he's a a little bit on the short side. Yeah, I think he's shorter than I am, and I'm five seven. I, so
3: I, I think he, he's what five three or something like that. Yeah, he's a, he's he's short enough. Where back in the early nineties, he was in the running to play Wolverine when back when they thought oh, it right. was very important uh, to have a man who was Wolverine's actual height to play Wolverine, and not this fucking six foot three Hugh Jackman. Wolverine's five foot. <laughs> Three inches tall. All right. You
1: know what? I would have loved to see that.
3: <laughs> I would have loved to see Glenn Danzig as yes. Wolverine. He was actually in the fucking. It was a serious discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Glenn Danzig. I mean, that his temperament. It's it's a very well known thing about Glenn Danzig. When people talk about Danzig, they talk about Danzig's temperament.
1: Yeah. I mean, he even said in earlier interviews that he was an angry and mean guy who got (laughs) into loads of trouble when he was a kid. You know, he was drinking a lot uh, and doing drugs at an early age. He did say all these things. But then he also said like, but by the time I got in my music as a teenager, like I decided to put that all aside and really work on my music. Which makes sense because, I mean, growing up, like his older brother, uh, Glenn's older brother, was like a band manager. So Glenn would start like roading for, for his brother's bands and stuff. And so he'd go check out these shows. He saw Blue Cheer once.
3: Oh, Blue Cheer's great. (laughs) He was only like 12, 13 years old. That's, I mean, that's great. That's a wonderful music education. Like a a lot of these guys like were into music and like around music from a young age. And it's funny to, you know, to know that he was like somewhat of a juvenile delinquent. It's just like Johnny Ramones. Like all these guys sound like a bunch of like kids wearing the newsboys hats, like fucking kicking. I don't want to go back to (laughs) school. Hey, you guys want to play some stickball? Like it's. (laughs) (laughs) he did say that
1: when he quit roading he peed all over the drummer's uh, drum set (laughs) so yeah actually that makes total sense
3: as far as musical inspiration went Danzig was first influenced by the guy that most rock musicians of the time were inspired by to the point where he eventually recorded a whole cover album of his songs yes Danzig loved Elvis particularly Elvis in the Memphis years.
5: Well, 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 that's because you think you're so pretty And just because your mama thinks you're hot Well, just because you think you've got something That nobody has got You cause me to spend all of my money You're laughing to call me old son at law Well, I'm telling you, baby you Be because'll we'll, we'll just be oh,
3: can't beat that first Elvis album. One thing that Danzig has over most other lead singers in the punk genre is that he has a legitimately solid singing voice.
1: Yes, he does. (laughs) (laughs) Remember me when I was watching those videos? Yeah. Of of them playing live and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, I. It's beastly. (laughs)
3: It's.
1: It's fantastic.
3: Yeah, I saw the stars in your fucking eyes. Yes, I did. <laughs> it's,
1: it's, just the, it's just the performance of it is just so primal.
3: <laughs> yeah, it very much is. But a lot of Danzig's like actual singing voice has to do with his primary influences as a musician. One thing that Glenn could do exceedingly well from the very beginning that other deep voice punk singers like Dave Vanian from The Damned struggle with was that Danzig could hold a fucking note. For a long time. And he most likely learned that from one of his favorite singers, Roy Orbison.
5: A candy colored clown they call the Sandman tiptoes to my room every night. Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper, Go to sleep, everything is all right. I close my eyes. you're a
1: The lonely drunk housewife song (laughs) when the guy comes to collect all the milk bottles she's like would you like to make a drink too I see it
3: I see it too but but seriously you take that voice you turn it up to 11 and that's Glenn Danzig's singing voice like if you, you take that voice and you fucking supercharge it you hook it up to a fucking engine to a jet engine and that's Glenn Danzig but Roy Orbison wasn't Danzig's only deep-voiced inspiration. Glenn also took quite a few cues from Jim Morrison. Now, while we may not have been 100% clear on how big of an influence the Doors really were on punk...
1: No, we were busy making fun of Jim Morrison <laughs> for being so goofy.
3: That's true. And, and, we, and that definitely that, that opinion has only been strengthened after watching the Oliver Stone Doors movie this weekend. Jesus Christ. Some
1: of my best riffing performance. <laughs> Ever,
3: <laughs> Yeah, because it's half on how goofy fucking Jim Morrison was and half on how goofy it is what Oliver Stone thinks is cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, you know, you can definitely hear The Doors' future influence on the genre of punk, especially on Danzig, even on The Doors' hits, if you listen to them from a certain perspective.
4: You know, the day destroys the night. Night divides the day. try side, break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side, yeah. We chased our pleasures here, dug our treasures there, but can't we still recall the time we cried, break on through.
3: Yeah, you put a couple of whoa, whoa, whoas in there. It's a fucking misfit song.
1: That song's great. Uh, yeah, it's, it's. I mean, that's just the thing. The doors were great. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. The thing
3: that is the thing is that you got I mean, as awful of a poet as Jim Morrison was, <laughs> like, I mean, just fucking absolutely terrible, awful, and as shitty as a person as he was, like, the doors, the music is legitimately fucking good. Like, I would recommend, like, if you have dismissed the doors out of hand. Go back and listen to their first couple of records. Go at it from a different perspective. Listen to songs like "Take It As It Comes." Uh, they're fucking amazing. Like the Doors really are good, even if Jim Morrison is a fucking goofball. <laughs> he is, was. <laughs> it was. Oh. Was. Yeah. He did not fake his death. Really? He, yeah. You never heard that. Yeah, the, the supposedly Jim Morrison did not die in the oh, bathtub, but actually faked right. his death. And Him
1: and Tupac are in Cuba right now. <laughs> I
3: yeah, with Elvis and uh, everybody else. <laughs> now, Glenn Danzig originally wanted to be a comic book artist, particularly at Marvel. But because Marvel was in a slump in the 70s after the high-flying creation of all their major characters in the 60s, glenn was unable to get a job
1: was that all on the rejection form <laughs> sorry see we're <laughs> in a slump
3: uh, ghostwriter isn't quite as big as a hit as we thought it'd be <laughs>
1: can i just be open with you
3: <laughs> we really put all of our fucking money on the vampire book but then nobody bought the vampire book and now we don't know <laughs> what to do i'm sorry Glenn. glenn's like why is there tears on this sheet Mobius was supposed
1: to get us out of the hole! (laughs) Well, luckily, eventually, Glenn will realize his dream much later. Yes, he will. Yes.
3: Morbius, not Mobius. (laughs) (laughs) Sure! (laughs) Instead, Glenn switched his focus to music, at least until he could make his comic book dreams a reality. And Glenn joined a cover band called kudat and boojang
1: yeah kudat and boojang <laughs> what does it mean it means fuck you i don't know i just made that up, I made that up. uh they probably just made that up too uh that yeah. was when glenn he was he was singing he knew he had a powerful voice and he played a little keyboard with a fuzz box on it yeah it glenn, really cute
3: yeah yeah i mean really for the, the first few years of danzig's uh, musical career like he was a keyboardist and a singer
1: Yeah exactly And they played mostly covers And they played at dances You know It was very local stuff And this is like Around 1974 1975-ish And they You know They played Velvet Underground They played The Doors They played songs That weren't really Hip back then Because It was already like Seven, eight years uh, Ago When those songs Were big Yeah and so Kudat was uh, with Stevie Lynn or Steve Linder, uh, Jim Catania, a.k.a. Mr. Jim, we're going to talk about a lot as a drummer, Jerry Byers from uh, Glenn's high school band, Talus mm-hmm. playing bass, and of course, Glenn there with his little fuzz box. Being like, I'm focusing on my music, mom. I will take out the trash later. And after that band fizzled out, after, you know, a little while, they're just messing around, uh, yeah. Glenn played in a band called Prostitutes of New York, oh, a.k.a. Pony. <laughs> Which, you know, they played, and they actually did get to go out and venture into like Manhattan and play at some of the venues downtown. So, like that was cool.
3: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I mean he was Glenn Danzig. I mean he was working on the shit from a young age, and he was a hard working motherfucker always. Yeah. But as you said, like, you know, Glenn was into Velvet Underground. He was into the Doors. Like, he was into the Stooges, of course. Like, he was into the shit that nobody else was really into. His other bandmates, like, from what, I mean, it seemed like they just didn't really enjoy it. They just tolerated it because Glenn was like, we're going to do a fucking Stooges song. And they're, you know, like, All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're the best fucking singer in Lodi, so. <laughs> okay.
1: And we're the only drummers and bassists around. <laughs>
3: But the weirdo music from the day that was the biggest influence was the one that was considered far and wide to be among the evilest of its time, even if it's now played hourly on classic rock radio. That band, Glenn's favorite, was Black Sabbath. Yeah! Oh, that's
6: awesome! (laughs) Yeah.
3: That first Sabbath album.
1: The bells, the rain, the thunder, it sets like the perfect mood. Yeah. Ah. Glenn tells about the time he was at a record store and he saw the Black Sabbath record and the cover on it, you know, has a girl wearing like, you know, satanic hood in a spooky forest. (laughs) And he thought, This must be good.
3: And he was right. He was right. He was right. That album
0: is so fucking great.
3: Now, Glenn's comic book influences are sort of what sets his future aesthetic apart from other bands in the late 70s with a horror edge, particularly bands in the metal scene. Those bands at least appeared to be more serious about the lifestyle and more focused on Satan. The best example being, of course, Venom. That's fucking great. I love Venom. But the difference between Venom and what would become The Misfits is the difference between a black mass and a Halloween party. Both can be fun, but they're different flavors to say the least. It's in other words, like, you know, the bands like Venom and all the black metal bands that came afterwards, like that is a lifestyle. Like, yes. that, like that is something even though venom weren't really serious even though they they saw a uh, even though venom just kind of saw uh, a gap in the market and well, let's check it.
1: out this serious ometer right over here <laughs> oh you're right you're right it's it's only half a little over half okay continue
3: yeah i mean if you want to know i mean it, the all the black metal shit, go listen to the black metal murder series we did on last podcast on the left for a lot more about that scene uh but you know that that is a a lifestyle that is the satanic we're going to the black masses like we are satanists like it's a lifestyle type of thing misfits it's more like a halloween party it's more like a costume that you put on and it's more like a movie you know it, yeah they're
1: telling a story
3: yeah it's much more cinematic uh and it, yeah it's much more story based now, by 1977, as the Ramones began making waves in the city and the Sex Pistols were grabbing headlines worldwide, Glenn decided to drop his original career choice of comic book artist in favor of a life in punk rock.
1: You hear that, Marvel? Too bad!
3: <laughs> now his old cover band had already dissolved, like we said, but from the very beginning, Glenn knew that the name of the punk rock band he was going to lead would be called... The Misfits.
1: It's a perfect name. It's
3: a great name. It's a perfect punk name.
1: It's uh, famously referenced from the movie The Misfits, starring uh, Marilyn Monroe. And that came out in 1961. Mm -hmm. And there's the, you know, the famous uh, Misfits curse, of course, because three stars of the movie died suddenly and quickly. Yeah. Like this was a Clark. Cable's last film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just like a couple days after he wrapped filming, he died of a heart attack. Jesus! And Marilyn Monroe died a year later due to a apparent drug overdose, or was it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> In Montgomery Clift, he died four years later after that. And the interesting thing is that night, the night he died, the Misfits movie was playing on his TV in his room. Jesus. His nurse asked if, you know, like, do you want to watch this movie with with me? You know, we could stay up and watch it. And he's like, absolutely not. (laughs) And she just closes the door. And the next day he was found dead in his bathtub.
3: Curse of the Misfits! Yes!
1: (laughs) But it's also said that Glenn really liked the name. You know, like it worked as a great band name and, you know, maybe they probably felt like Misfits. And, of course And did. growing up as a kid and a teenager in a suburban town, who doesn't? And Danzig also said that he had a shirt that said Misfits on it that didn't like it just that's all it just said. So yeah. it was probably like, all right, you know, I just wear the shirt around. So, you know, this is my first band shirt.
3: Yeah. <laughs> now,
1: <laughs> now that I will tailor it around my band.
3: Well, I mean... It's speaking as a you know a, a guy who fucking played sports you know played football in high school and all that shit like just because you play sports and just because you play football doesn't mean you fit in and it doesn't mean that you feel at home where you are and it doesn't mean like it doesn't mean that you are relating to what it is that you're doing sometimes it's just something to fucking do and sometimes you just like playing the game uh, it doesn't <laughs> necessarily mean like oh play football equals popular kid you know jocks jocks can be outsiders too of course yeah i mean look at henry rollins for fuck's sake
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> look at all these guys
3: look at all these fucking dudes yeah yeah, yeah. i mean li- lifting weights uh and uh playing fucking sports and liking the giants doesn't necessarily make you an insider you know
1: no no i mean maybe you know especially in this case with glenn like yeah he, he had a poetic mind
3: yeah of course So when Stanzig had the name set and ready to go, he began searching his neighborhood in Lodi, New Jersey for dudes who might have a similar vision to Glenn's when it came to a punk rock band. The first members were Manny Martinez, the drummer from Glenn's old cover band, and Jimmy Battle playing guitar. But the, oh, what,
1: you, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the first official members, uh-huh. but the first lineup really was uh Glenn and Mr. Jim. Uh-huh. He had Mr. Jim as the drummer. Remember from before, uh-huh. and Diane DiPiazza Piazza on bass, uh-huh. Jimmy Bad on guitar. They, they right. did a few rehearsals a couple times, and it, this is, does not matter at <laughs> all. Right?
3: It's, it's none of this. I was gonna ask, like, like this minutia. What does it have to do with, I don't know, let's just say The Misfits' first EP?
1: Well, nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. Continue.
3: Yeah, I mean, th- this is definitely, this is a story, the, the story of The Misfits is, so, there's so many lineup changes and so much minutiae. Uh, some of it has to do with the history and some of it has to do with music, some of it's, and some of it doesn't. But the dude coming in on the bass, Would be a part of the misfits forever, even if Glenn was not. His name was Jerry Kayafa, I think it's Kayafa. Yeah, but he would one day be known as Jerry only.
1: That's right. We met him once.
3: We did. He was exceedingly nice.
1: Yes, well, well I'll post a picture.
3: Yeah, we'll post yeah, we'll post a picture. It was at a very strange party down in Brighton Beach.
1: Yes. <laughs> How else would We're... you meet a misfit? At the most <laughs> random weirdest shit ever. And that's that's what it was. That's what it was. And Jerry uh, back then, you know, he he was a kid. He was uh, just another low-die New Jerseyan who just wanted uh, he wanted to start playing music when he saw David Bowie's Diamond Dogs tour in 1974. Oh. When when he was in high school so he was just like this is amazing look look at all the theatrics look, look at all this. this this is like this is not like foreigner who would just stand there and play like he was just enthralled by the whole thing and he met Glenn through Manny remember Manny Martinez Martinez being the drummer mm-hmm. Mandy, Manny's next door neighbor was Jerry's girlfriend at the time so one day Manny saw that Jerry had a bass guitar in his car just out there parked on the driveway and so Manny's like, hey, so dude, you, Jerry, you, you play bass? He's like, yeah, 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 I, I play bass. You know, he just got it like that day.
6: Like, <laughs> it was like a Christmas present.
1: So he, he really like, he was just starting out.
3: Yeah. Now, less than a month after Jerry joined the band in March of 1977, the Misfits took off fucking running and played their first gig at CBGB's, which by this point, CBGB's was already the place to go if you wanted to play punk rock or weird music or just fucking whatever. It was the place.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, they played their first gig uh, Monday, April 18th. 1977, and they're like, we're at CBGBs. This is great. We're gonna make flyers, posters. You know, Jerry said like uh, that. That they like told everybody. They brought people along. You know, Glenn with his keyboards, mm-hmm. Jerry on bass. <laughs> it's so cute. <laughs> but the thing is, Jerry shows up wearing uh, supposedly open-toed platform shoes and sequin pants. <laughs> And he's like, they're getting ready to set up. And Glenn just looks over. He's like, what are you wearing?
3: You're not going to fucking wear that on stage.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> what are you talking It's cool. Not it's fucking, cool. i
3: not fucking going on stage. Wait. you wearing that bullshit. Well, every, everyone else over here is wearing diamond dogs. <laughs> diamond dogs, New York dolls. Yeah, come on.
1: And this was actually an audition showcase. Yes. It was the first of two auditions that they would do at CBGB's.
3: Or was it the first of four auditions? depending on who you talk to at what point in time you talk to.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter.
3: It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Well, what, what does kind of matter, I guess, when it comes to the attitude of, of the misfits, uh, is they uh, said, th- th- what they claimed at one point, I think Danza claimed at one point, is that you know they played these shows as showcase shows. Uh, they weren't told that they were showcase shows, and then Hilly Crystal didn't pay them.
1: That's ridiculous. You could see it on, like, uh, on the paper, like when they, you know, put it out on Village Voice, audition showcase, <laughs> Monday, April 18th, between like Suicide and the Damned or yeah, whatever. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, it. They really were showcasing that. I, I think they knew that.
3: I think they knew. Yeah. that. I mean, it, it's kind. Of, it is.
1: I mean you that's, hear you hear uh, Jerry I think it's Jerry's like version of this he's like yeah Hilly didn't pay us we played three shows and then I told him to go fuck himself
3: It was Glenn who said big that guy, huh? yeah <laughs> big guy. Yeah I mean that's the thing about the Misfits is that sometimes they do the way they tell the stories make them sound like big tough fucking dudes like fucking yeah like nobody's fucked to the fucking Misfits uh it's not always like that. No, no. <laughs> it's not always like. I mean, yeah, they were they were big, tough dudes at a certain point in their history, but yeah, yeah, they definitely they they like uh, they like to puff themselves up just a little bit, you know. <laughs> that was
1: a New Jersey thing.
3: It's, uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Watch like two minutes of The Sopranos.
3: <laughs> <laughs> not a month later, the Misfits recorded their first single at the Rainbow Studio in Manhattan. This early track, called "Cough Cool." featuring glenn on keyboards sounds to me like a weird mixture of the doors and suicide mm.
1: Now, you really got to think about this. This single came out in June 1977. Yeah. They started a band in February. Yeah. I mean, in rehearsals. They did their first show in April, and now it's June. (laughs) I mean, Glenn liked to get things done quickly.
3: They just did it. They just fucking went for it. From yeah. the beginning.
1: And Glenn did all the artwork for the single. Like, he took the photo of the band uh, in Manny's basement. He put their new uh, label name on it, Blank Records. Uh, you know, they sold the single. They tried to sell the single at the CBGB show, uh, the audition showcase. <laughs> <laughs> like, if I were to come around, try to sell my CD at a guest spot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it was real. I mean, like, they were in the business. They were ready to start their business. Uh, they pressed 500 copies. I mean, that is... Very ambitious. It's
3: ambitious that is optimistic.
1: Yes. And Glenn unfortunately misspelled Jerry's name as Kaifa. Yeah. Without the extra A and on the record. So Jerry said, You know what, for now on, can you just bill me as only Jerry, please? Yeah. Just, stop stop with this. And Glenn's like, Got it. Right in that down Jerry only. <laughs> Anything else?
3: I mean, that was the cool thing about the Misfits and that and that's what I um that's what i really respect about him is that at every point you know especially in these early days in the first like 3 or 4 years like they always moved forward they did not sit around and wait like well let's wait until we've got it a little more together let's wait until we've got it a little more uh coalesced here because you know like cough cool it sounds it bears very little resemblance to what the misfits eventually became like danzig's voice is pretty much the same but all the instrumentation is different because uh, it's just it's cool as shit it's great I, I i really respect that song uh but i don't know that that's just it's, I think it's a fun lesson to artists out there. It's like, just fucking go just for go it. it. Just go do it. Just
1: do it. You never know.
3: Just go do it. But Jerry was not the only member to change his name with the release of the single. The short-tempered Glenn Azzalone dropped his Italian surname and changed it to Danzig, which he'd eventually make that his fucking legal name.
1: Glenn Danzig.
3: Glenn Danzig. Now, Glenn Danzig has always been a little cagey when asked about the origins of the name Danzig because Danzig is a fucking cagey about everything. <laughs> Most likely, he chose it because he'd gone on a trip to the city of Danzig after high school in Glan Danzig. It just sounds really fucking cool.
1: Well, yeah, you know, when Glenn uh, was asked about that, you know, he said, fuck you, that's why. <laughs> it's a family thing. That's all you need to know. All right? Now get out of my business. <laughs> this is an interview. I know. Fuck you.
3: Yeah, Danzig and in interviews, it's it's one it's one of two Danzigs that show, show up.
1: You know what? And I don't even, like, not appreciate that because maybe that is part of the show.
3: I get it. Like I, I get it. like some some interviews like Danzig is extremely, extremely standoffish. Uh, but I think a lot of times, like from what I've seen, it has a lot to do with the interviewer. Like he doesn't re- he doesn't suffer fools gladly. You know, in in researching this uh, series, like we've watched a lot of interviews and we've seen a lot of really bad interviews. And we've seen a lot of the musicians that we cover be very polite To those very bad interviews. Be very polite to those very bad interviewers asking really dumb, awful questions. Glenn Danzig doesn't do that. No. Uh, (laughs) If it's an awful, stupid question, he gets mad and he will respond to such like he he just doesn't he just doesn't suffer it uh but if you know the interviewer's nice and if the interviewer's ask, asking good questions man the smile on Danzig's <laughs> face like <laughs> like when he's into it like he's extremely nice he's just um <sighs> fussy that's fine. I, and that's fine. It's that's fine. F- it's fine that's to be That's Glenn fussy. Danzig. Yeah, that's you know, Glenn Danzig. We don't
1: know about Glenn Anzalone, <laughs> and I'd be too afraid to ask. And you know what? Let's just not even find out.
3: <laughs> now, after Cough Cool, the band decided to ditch the keyboard and hone in on a sound that was far closer to the Ramones. So they brought in Jerry's childhood friend, Frank Licata, on guitar to make that happen. Now, as far as who wrote the songs in The Misfits, there's quite a bit of argument, especially concerning the early days. Frank Licata said that Glenn wrote everything, but Jerry only has quite a different opinion.
1: Yes, I mean, this changes so much, of course. Uh, Jerry says musically that they, as a band, wrote like maybe 25 to 30% of it, like musically. Uh, he did say like, okay, so Glenn does write all the lyrics. Yeah. But once in a while, I'll throw him a line. <laughs> <laughs> so that works, right? <laughs> and like, but he also said like a lot of the intros, the riffs, uh, the outros and stuff like that, arrangements, you know, it, he, he, he took care of that. Mm-hmm. And he even like... In a a little more uh, recent interview, he did say, like, he compared the Misfits to a restaurant. He said, Glenn goes to the store and he comes to a restaurant with the meat and potatoes. Then he gives them to me and I cook them. (laughs) I'm hungry. (laughs) So pretty much what he's trying to say is, like, uh, we did have input here and there. It wasn't just Glenn alone for the whole time.
3: Yeah. And the thing is about Jerry only and Glenn Danzig is it, it has been an acrimonious relationship between the two of them uh, at times over the years. Uh, and it really seems with Jerry Only, like in interviews, how generous he is to Danzig concerning the early days uh, is directly in relation to how well he's getting along with Danzig.
1: That Yeah, that can happen. I mean, remember the Sopranos, you know, this is business. <laughs> it's not personal.
3: <laughs> (laughs) is it now at the same time that the misfits were figuring out their new sound a record label out of chicago named mercury records was searching the country for a punk rock band that would help the label capitalize on the new scene because at this point nobody knew what the fuck was going to happen with punk rock nobody knew if it was going to be a hit nobody knew if it was going to stay as an underground thing so record labels started seeding talent So Mercury's plan was to release punk albums under a subsidiary label called Blank. And the first band they planned to release under this label was an art punk band from Cleveland called Pier Ubu.
1: Uh, experimental it's uh, I, I read somewhere avant garage music
3: yeah avant garage that's a real yeah that's a great way to put it I mean you know Captain B all that type of yeah very very Captain B you know it, <laughs> it, it, it's funny it's like like Pierre Ubu uh, it's like Captain B and Frank Zappa where it's like I love everybody who loves them <laughs> but, but like, like all the bands are like, it's like oh yeah Pierubus Huge Influence Fakes Appacap Before I fucking love them like I love everybody who loves them but like when it comes to listening to them like cool
1: it's all right yeah.
3: <laughs> but they they really are like a um i mean they're a hugely influential band
1: huge especially uh they were just starting out i mean they they formed in 1975 uh from cleveland ohio they released their debut album the modern dance under blank records oh hold up, i'm getting a call here oh it's glenn dancing <laughs> <laughs> oh you you own the rights to Blank. <laughs>
3: Yep, I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, Mercury, they didn't know when they chose Blank Records that a bunch of dudes out in New Jersey had already chosen that name. Uh, And Danzig called them up to characteristically inform them of his displeasure. (laughs)
1: Yes, Glenn threatened to sue. (laughs) With what money, who knows?
3: (laughs) Jerry's dad's money Yeah probably
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well he threatened to sue Because he saw Like a promo For about the You know The new modern dance album That was going to come out So after You know An angry phone call He managed to hash it out He said with uh, Cliff Bernstein Who uh, was working in Mercury Records at the time You know Later Will be famous for Managing Metallica Mm -hmm. Uh, But So between him and Cliff The deal was that Mercury could keep The Blank Records name And in exchange The Misfits got 30 hours of studio time free of charge
3: that's a hell of a deal
1: and the option to release the album if mercury likes it
3: and for this record the misfits fired drummer manny martinez and brought in jim Catania, aka mr jim which gave the percussion the no-fill straightforward march into death that the misfits needed to become the misfits
1: He's like, I'm just a drummer. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's Manny, very kind.
3: Manny was very jazzy. Like, uh, if you listen yeah. to Cough Cool, there's a lot of there's a lot of fucking fills, there's a lot of jazzy riffs in it. Like, they wanted something fucking punk.
1: Yeah, like Mister Jim. Mm-hmm. They recorded at CI Recording Studio in uh, Manhattan. Uh, Dave Vachelis was the audio engineer who was given the task to record them because no one else wanted to. And he was the (laughs) bottom rung. He was an assistant engineer. So he was like, all right, this is my job now. And he said, like, they were just regular New Jersey guys who couldn't have been nicer. Yeah. You know, and the the band recorded everything live in the studio. Songs like Last Caress, Spinal Remains, Theme for a Jackal, Bullet, Teenagers from Mars. It's like, like lots of classics. Oh, yeah,
3: man. I mean, these 17 songs were called The Static Age. And the Misfits hoped that they were up to the Mercury standards. I mean, they delivered them a fucking album. Unfortunately, that Pier Ubu album did not do so well in the stores. And after keeping the Misfits on the hook for months, Mercury finally said it was a no-go.
1: Yeah, that's what Franchi coma said, uh, Frank Licata. Yeah. Uh, he said that when the guy from Mercury came in to hear the tape... He could tell it wasn't something he wanted to hear. <laughs> and the guy's like, "Cool, all right, cool. Well, we'll let you know."
3: Yeah, and, and I think they waited for something like you know six months for it them was a to few get back months. to. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, in it, it Misfits' time, forever. Yes. you know, for guys who we, just wanted. I've to been
1: hit. in four bands since then. <laughs>
3: Oh yeah, I mean the Ubu album was just a it was a commercial failure. I mean, if they were wanting to get it was in hindsight it's, it's just it's a it's a bad fucking choice. If an album if they're going for sales, don't choose art punk. <laughs> like Pier Ubu's fucking great, but there were a lot of punk bands out there during that time uh that had much more of a commercial friendly sound. I'm not saying the Misfits would have found commercial success or anything like that, but they probably would have sold at least as much as the Ramones.
1: Yeah, who, who knows what could have happened?
3: Who knows? And had this album been released by the label when it should have been, the Misfits would have been there right alongside the Ramones and everyone else in the first wave of New York punk. I mean, the Misfits would be mentioned and in the same breath as the Talking Heads and uh, Blondie, Patti Smith, Ramon. Yeah, it's like they they would all be there. The, the Misfits would be right there along with them. But as it was, the Misfits fell 5 years behind everyone else. That's what Jerry only said. He said the fucking the timeline got set back 5 years and it would take about that amount of time before the classics contained in static age like this one right here would be heard by a wide audience. We'll be see what i'm saying about the difference between the misfits and venom right
1: yeah <laughs> yeah no this song it's a great punk song
3: it's a great punk song yeah but it's fun it's a fucking halloween party you're going they're going as an alien <laughs> <laughs> but after mercury records said no instead of giving up or even slowing down the misfits did what so many other bands and artists did afterward they said fuck it went the diy route and started releasing music on their own in small pressings
1: yeah, uh, Glenn named uh, renamed it from Blank Records to Plan 9 Records.
3: We all know the reference. Yes, yeah. Plan
1: 9 from Outer Space by Ed Wood, yeah. the 1959 classic sci-fi film... Fantastic.
3: It, it is wonderful in so many different ways. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and Glenn did, you know, he he designed and made the flyers, the the EP covers, uh, the buttons, the shirts. I mean, he did the marketing, the promoting, the designing, it, it, everything. Everything, the the whole aesthetic yeah. of the Misfits. And the the EPs that they would record and print, Glenn would drive around and drop them off at like record stores like Bleaker Bops. Yeah. He would make the calls. He would show up with a stack of EPs and be like, "Can you sell this?"
3: The thing was that there was a backing behind all of this.
1: Well, yeah, Jerry only.
3: <laughs> <laughs> like and Glenn Danzig, absolutely. Like he did a lot of the legwork and he did a lot of the creative work. But the Misfits would not have been able to do what they did. Without the backing of Jerry only's dad,
1: yeah, well Jerry only's dad uh, started a company called Pro Edge, which is like an exacto knife like a uh, type of line like that they use uh, so they would have a factory that made exacto knives yeah and so Jerry only and his brothers would work in the factory for hours like twelve hours a day for years. I I feel like he's still doing it right now.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that's what Jerry only would do is that he would go out. He would play a misfit show at night. He would go back to the factory. When it opened up, he would wash off all of his punk makeup in the fucking bathroom and then go on the fucking assembly line.
1: Yeah. And work and just make all the money that they could use uh, to to record these EPs. Of course, later they get to record more because uh, they're using a lot of their EPs right now from the static age recording sessions and CIF recordings. I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, you might as well use them. They're My, right there.
3: Might as well use them. But that's the thing about punk in America. Uh, is I, I've been thinking about this a lot, definitely with the Misfits. It's like like what we were talking about in our damn series, you know, punk in America was an art thing and punk in England was much more of a political thing. And I think the reason why that is is that punk in America is a very middle class thing. Punk is made by middle class kids and always oh, yeah. and, and is still made by middle class kids like punk is a middle class thing in America in England punk the reason why it's political is because punk was made by lower class kids. Like the kids in the dam didn't have money. The kids in the sex pistols definitely didn't have money. Like the, they were kids who were poor as fuck. And so therefore it became much more of a political movement. Uh, But here in America, you know, it's, at least not in the
1: beginning. Not, at least not until we get to like crass period, I guess. Yeah. But in this part, they're it all- cre-
3: definitely created by middle class kids. Yes, yeah. definitely.
1: Very much like Jerry only. I mean, his, his family, they were pretty wealthy. I yeah. mean, they had tennis courts. In a pool.
3: <laughs>
1: I mean, they, they were doing okay.
3: Yeah, they were doing okay, <laughs> more but, than okay. <laughs> you know, even though you know the Ashtons, uh, were you know did not. Uh, concerning the Stooges, even though the Ashtons didn't really come from uh, money or anything like that, like Iggy Pop was firmly middle class. Like, it's, yeah, he
1: lived in a trailer for most of his you know childhood.
3: They lived in a trailer because they wanted to live in a trailer. I know. <laughs> that was a family de- That was a family decision. Iggy Pop never wanted for anything.
1: that's true so really all in all jerry only did spend a lot of time financing this while glenn did a lot of designing and the money that they would make at shows in future would all go back into the band
3: yeah and of course you know danzig doing a lot of the creative work and not having a job and jerry only going to his fucking (laughs) assembly line job at his dad's exacto knife company you know there was a lot of conflict that came out of that You know, it's like Jerry's got the money, Glenn's got the ideas, and a lot of conflict comes from that, especially when you're all fucking 21 years old, (laughs) 22, 23. Like, it's, it's fucking tough, man. It's very difficult.
1: Well, they complimented each other regardless.
3: They really did. Now, for The Misfits' first single after recording Static Age, The Misfits chose a graphic retelling of the JFK assassination, which, for some reason... Also, included a fucking disgusting sexual fantasy in which Jackie O gives Danzig a blowjob and licks the semen from her own palm.
1: No! Jackie, <laughs> no. no! Jackie,
3: no! That song was Bullet. <laughs> Definitely goes into a stream of consciousness thing there after about a minute.
1: Well, it came from a poem that Glenn wrote a few years before yeah. he formed the band. I love that it was a poem. <laughs> but you know what? I guess the rules are there are no rules.
3: I could just see him at a fucking open mic, just suck, Jackie, suck. <laughs> <laughs> My palm is the desert. <laughs> Masturbate me. Suck, Jackie, suck. Thank you.
1: Oh, <laughs> snaps. <laughs> Man, we should really change the rules of this open mic. <laughs> you know, they were actually going to try to release this on Ork Records, uh, Terry Ork's uh, little record label yeah. thing, but yeah. that fell through immediately. Yeah. So, I mean, so then they went back to like, yeah, DIY, that's really what we want to do.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, Terry Ork, he's a, he's a lot artier. Yeah, ter- <laughs> Terry Ork, records the guy that released the first television single. And there's like a great box set of all the stuff that Ork Records put out Uh, it's just the orc records box set it's really fucking it's really fucking cool but yeah i could see how terry orc wouldn't be into that (laughs) ironically though the b-side to the single held three of the misfits best songs as opposed to the lead which bullet it it might be a touch too edgy for its own good it's fucking it's a it's the the instrumentation is great but the the lyrics are like "Ah, all right (laughs) (laughs) among those was perhaps The Misfits' most mysterious song, which, to this day, nobody really knows what the fuck this is about. The song is, of course, We Are 138.
5: We are one-
1: Supposedly, it's about George Lucas's uh, first film. Remember THX uh, 1138? Mm-hmm. And Glenn Mendy's like badges with like robots that had 138 like, on, the, on the foreheads. And, and Jerry only explained it. Like it was like people being treated like androids, right? Half, half android, half man in a dystopia, mm-hmm. like the movie. Yeah. And Glenn said, The guys didn't write it. I fucking wrote it. <laughs> you don't know what the fuck it's about. It's about violence.
3: <laughs> very straightforward.
1: Interpret it as you will.
3: <laughs> but Aside from the horror songs, and that's if you do consider We Are 138 to be horror, or sci-fi, I suppose, The Misfits also wrote straight-up snotty punk on this single, or EP. It's very confusing as to whether it's a single or it's, it's an a, EP. Yeah, it's an EP. Yeah, yeah, it's an EP, pretty much. four, One song on one side, three songs on the other. But even though... This song we're talking about here definitely falls into the misogyny trap that a lot of the artists like the Stooges, the Damned, and even the Beastie Boys fall into. Attitude is still a fucking punk classic. (laughs) Oh, great.
1: It's a great song.
3: But it does amount to shut up, bitch.
1: Ah, oh. <laughs> You know, it's a funny thing is because I was like singing along to it yesterday. Yeah. I, and I he, went and, then... and walked
3: the dog and I came back and, you know, and uh, I came back in and what did I find?
1: I was singing along to Attitude
3: while cooking dinner.
1: Yes, in the, <laughs> in the kitchen, apparently where I belong. <laughs> yes, of course there's a misogyny like we talked about in the damned of course and yeah. just the antics of a, a young kids who I mean not to excuse them because they're young kids. No, assholes, yeah. of course. Uh just Thinking that they're funny, I, I have no idea.
3: Yeah, thinking that they're funny, and also just it's there's so much fucking anger. You know, it's like taking the anger that you have towards you know a, you know a girl rejecting you. You know, it's taking that anger, and sometimes it comes out in real fucked up ways. Yeah, and sometimes it and sometimes it comes out in a, a way like attitude that. You know, the guys in The Misfits, you know, they've over the years said like, yeah, we've said some fucking awful shit when we were kids. Like we, we said some really awful things. You know, we don't necessarily think like that anymore. We're not necessarily those same dudes. But, you know, the songs are still there and they're still fucking... You know, 19-year-old kids, like, listening to that fucking song and being like, oh, yeah, shut the fuck up, bitch. Uh, it's
1: like there's no meaning within those words anymore, I feel. Yeah. Like, like And also,
3: who the fuck is looking up the lyrics to Misfits songs?
1: <laughs> you're like, this is how I should live my life. <laughs> this is a
3: good idea. This is a good idea. Exactly. You know, you're, you're totally right. And like, you know, I'm who the fuck is really taking the Misfits that seriously?
1: Right. And, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to, like, I, how I used to sing along to girls, you know, that song the BC Boys wrote. Uh, I, I would sing it. Like, but I thought it was more tongue in cheek, you know. And if the Beastie Boys really meant what they said, I took it as ironic. Yeah. So at least they failed in their message. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's up to you to decide if, yeah. you, if you, you know, where you want to take stand.
3: Yeah. It's up to you to decide. And it, yeah. And it, it, yeah. As always, it really is up to you to decide whether you really give a fuck or not. Yeah. And we don't.
1: Not this time.
3: No. Nope. So after the bullet single, the Misfits went through a major lineup change, as some of the members were starting to feel a little iffy about the sort of vibe the Misfits were projecting.
1: Yeah, Coma, he wasn't into the horror stuff, you know, and he still doesn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) He said he enjoyed the music, but at some point, maybe perhaps after the disappointment of not getting the record deal, he decided to part ways with the guys. But on good terms, I mean, he's still friends with Jerry to this day. Yeah. So yeah, they're still cool, and he's still Franchicoma, Coma. He's still hanging out in Lodi, New Jersey. No shit. Yeah, or nearby, somewhere, somewhere around there. I don't <laughs> Some, know.
3: Somewhere in North Jersey. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, so when Francie Coma left the group, they played two more shows in Toronto with Rick Riley from The Victims filling in. So he's kind of filling in. Like, you know, If you a little trivia there for you. I, yeah. I know it doesn't matter. <laughs> and then Mr. Jim also decided to leave and rejoin his band uh, Continental Crawler, which he considered a bad move in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, all these guys did. If you watch all their interviews, yeah. Manny and all them was like, well, I, I, we didn't know.
3: We didn't know. We didn't know. So to replace Mr. Jim, the Misfits brought in Joe Poole, soon known as Joey Image, who got the job after auditioning in a garage belonging to Jerry Only's dad. To replace Frank Licata, the band brought in Robert Calfold, a.k.a. Bobby Steele.
1: Yeah, Bobby Steele. That's a cool name for like a superhero or a porn star. (laughs) (laughs) He got his name from the metal rods that he had. He had like leg braces when he was a kid and and then later had to walk with a cane, you know, just a lot of uh, physical. Issues there, yeah.
3: Unfortunately, but he owned it, Bobby Steele.
1: Yeah, exactly. He he made it powerful. It's cool and pornographic <laughs> to me. <laughs> so Glenn called up Bobby because Bobby uh, Steele he put in an ad at the local music paper. You know, Bobby had been playing around in uh, several bands, but this time he was looking for one like a band with a record deal and management. And Glenn on the phone's like, "Yeah, we we kind of have that," <laughs> and just like welcomed him into the band
3: yeah Well, with this lineup the misfits increasingly brought the sometimes cringy edginess promised in the bullet single to their onstage antics like the time they splashed a crowd at max's kansas city with grape kool-aid just after the jonestown massacre
1: it was like two weeks after <laughs> you know like i always say like star wars a uh, holiday special came out the same weekend as the jonestown massacre yeah Two American tragedies. <laughs> I know.
6: Get shit for that.
3: But when it came to building other parts of their own mythos, the Misfits fucking nailed it. Their 1978 band bio reads half like the lazy philosophizing of Richard Ramirez and half like a public access show where a ghoulish jokester hosts a public domain horror movies. <laughs>
1: wow yes yeah yeah. because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would send um you know these promo eps that they recorded with a typed up bio because remember they're business yeah uh it's kind of like the same idea with the ramones and how to- tommy ramone used his real name and said he was their manager it's like fake it till you make it kind of shit yeah and so their their bio said okay it's, it starts out nicely the, the misfits are comprised of four talented misplaced individuals all right, that sounds nice. Yeah, you know, yeah. bassist Jerry Only, guitarist Bobby Steele, drummer uh, Joey Pills. He changed it to Joey Imaging because it doesn't matter.
3: Joey Pills is great, yes. though. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was two drug reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and Danzig. Okay, nice, very nice, very nice. And then it goes on to say, Glenn Danzig almost died when he was born at Hackensack Hospital. Okay, <laughs> the world will regret. They let me live, he says.
3: <laughs> the world will regret they let me live. <laughs> and Jerry... Or or read another way, ways like, the world will regret they let me live. Which is, you know, that's the Ramirez part, yeah.
1: <laughs> and Jerry only was born under strange circumstances. And those black rings around his eyes aren't painted on, but a birth defect. His favorite saying is, I like to feel it squirm until it dies.
3: <laughs> Which is more like fucking a Ghoulie. Hello. <laughs> uh, this is a beautiful movie coming. <laughs> yes, tonight. Oh, oh, oh. you're wonderful.
1: It's wonderful. I don't know why I said that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's fucking great. They're no, setting the scene. They're really setting the scene. Like they're, they're, uh, they're establishing characters. Now, considering some of the stories we've already told in earlier series the general chaos of punk shows in the early days resulted in a fair amount of injuries when it came to the people in the crowd. It's
1: all part of the fun.
3: It's all a part of the fun. I mean, yes, someone, people did get blinded sometimes.
1: Yes, I mean, remember uh, Algie from The Damned? He would biff him in the bopo. <laughs> he oh, I forgot about
3: biffing him in the bopo. <laughs> he would
1: take his bass and just hit him with the, with the back of his bass, like if, if someone was beginning to unruly in the audience. Yeah. The audience! <laughs> <laughs> or so many broken noses. I Glenn has had a few Plessis himself because mm-hmm. um, a lot of these times times these guys will use their guitars as weapons Yeah, because maybe you have to I mean there's a big uh, we don't need to get into the whole thing of the bouncers versus the kids but sometimes that happens sometimes you just need to arm yourself
3: sometimes but sometimes it's just the musicians being assholes like remember when Sid yeah, Vicious tossed the fucking glass and then fucking blinded that girl
1: it's more often that <laughs> yeah <laughs>
3: And when it comes to recklessness, the Misfits were no exception, although by this point, venues were treating this sort of shit with a zero-tolerance policy. In March of 1979, the Misfits were banned from Maxis, Kansas City after Bobby Steele launched a glass bottle at an audience member's head.
1: Banned for life.
3: Banned for life.
1: life. That means until... Two years later, when Max's <laughs> Kansas City closed,
3: and the Misfits, you know, they'd already they'd already said "fuck you" to Heli Crystal. You know, they're now banned from fucking Max's. <laughs> 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 I mean, there's Hurrahs, there's Mud Club, there's definitely, there's other places. There's uh fucking uh it is was um was Ungano still open at this point? No, Ungano's is gone.
1: <laughs> but I mean, there's also other venues in Queens, and you know you, you could check out. Uh, they, they were in exile, I think, in Long Island City. Uh-huh. That was open for just a little bit of time.
3: Just a little bit. And
1: of and and Teaneck, New Jersey. They also did a lot of shows in like Show uh, Show Palace, I believe, was another place. So they they also had other places to go to.
3: Yeah, and they were also like touring around a little bit. Like they were doing shows in Canada and all that type of shit.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. They they went to Canada. They went to Toronto. They did a couple shows at the Shock Theater, uh, just a little place that they opened up for just a little bit of amount of time, and then that place yeah. closed down probably <laughs> probably like ten minutes after the Misfits left. <laughs> but yeah, they, they they were moving around.
3: Yeah. But that Maxis Kansas City show was actually important for an entirely different reason, as the flyer for the Maxis gig was the first appearance of the Crimson Ghost, whose visage is now being sold at fucking Target.
1: Yeah, fucking Target. <laughs> it's fucking HM. All I have to say is Nobody better ask me where where I got my misfit shirt.
3: <laughs> you don't have a misfit shirt. Yes, I do. You never wear it.
1: Yes, I do. I. It's a blue one. It, it's got it's cut in the sides.
3: Oh yeah, that one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hot topic. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, I
1: used to be an employee. Yeah.
3: <laughs> you got a very nice employee discount when you worked at Hot Topic. Yes. <laughs> okay, who gives a shit? Who cares? Yeah, who yeah. cares?
1: But, uh, yeah, Glenn first used the Crimson... And can- what?
3: And I can only hear, like, a couple of dickheads, are, of course you fucking worked at to Hot Topic. Of course I it.
1: fucking did, man. <laughs> You're correct. This was in 2000. Year 2000.
3: <laughs>
1: so, Glenn first used it. He first used the Crimson, uh, the crimson
3: Ghost... Um, one more thing. I bought a Misfit shirt at Hot Topic in 2000 oh my as well. Oh, <laughs> We're both getting, so if you want to, if you want to torch her, torch me too. Set me on fire. I was a customer, God damn it. I loved that place. <laughs>
1: Tune in for the Hot Topic song by Marcus Parks.
3: <laughs> okay, the Crimson Ghost, the Crimson Ghost. Yes, ghosts.
1: yes, the first time he used it was on the on the flyer for the March 28th gig uh at Maxis, the famous one where, you know, did they get banned for life. And that came from the film serials, uh The Crimson Ghost, that's what it was called. That came out in 1946. So you can find all that stuff on YouTube. Yeah. It's it's really fun stuff. It's stuff that they used to do back in the day when they put all these like little mini episodes up in the movie theater back back then when people would watch like the news. It'd be like, "Whoa, look, Nazis parading." <laughs> <laughs> oh, and now The Crimson Ghost. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and so like yeah, so Crimson Ghost is like a very sinister character with a hood and a skirt skull mask and skeleton hands or as they called the crimson ghost they call they called him the fiend skull
3: yeah the yes. fiend skull
1: and later glenn and jerry would have a custody battle over our little fiend skull <laughs> <laughs> but it'll work out it'll work out
3: it'll work out yeah yeah yeah, yeah but yeah.
1: this is around the time so you know they released bullet so somewhere around between bullet and the horror business ep glenn kind of started to figure out the aesthetic for the band
3: yeah now following their ban from Maxis, the Misfits returned to the studio to record their next single. This one, allegedly based on the then recent murder of Nancy Spungen, and definitely the closest the Misfits ever came to the fucking Ramones, was Horror Business. <laughs> The way he says Earth room," like, <laughs> like that's that's very Joey Ramone, you know.
1: You know the insert to uh, the horror business EP. You wanna, you know, what it reads? What? On February twenty eighth, nineteen seventy nine, the Misfits in a mobile recording unit entered an abandoned haunted house in northern New Jersey. They recorded and left Ooh. while mixing the tapes back at a New York City recording studio. Strange voices and noises were heard in the background. No explanation of these sounds could be given by the band or the recording crew. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And what Glenn said in an interview, he said that the haunted house was in some desolate area along this long highway in New Jersey that he used to go to as a kid to get trashed with his friends. And he described that there was mansions there and uh, military training stables with bottomless pits filled with water, and if you fall, you fucking die. Jerry said, that's bullshit.
6: <laughs> yeah, of course. He said
1: that they heard a weird sound on the recording and he didn't know where it was coming from. I and mean, They recorded at CI Studios in New York City and, <laughs> and they're like, what should we do? We can't afford to go record it again. You know what? It's just too much money to remix this. You know what? Let, let's just, just say we recorded at a haunted house. <laughs> Done.
3: Oh. <Whew. sighs> Problem solved. Good story, though. Good story. Amazingly, though, the misfits had a direct connection to the incident involving nancy Spongeon and said vicious or at the very least one member had a connection to the aftermath of nancy's death this, Jerry is, only. Fu- this is fucking insane
1: i know <laughs> Jerry only the same guy who met us yeah uh, so uh, so the night that Sid died was February 2nd 1979 as we talk about in the Sid and Nancy the, you know, uh, episode that we did before
3: yeah which again is not as annoying as you think it's gonna be <laughs>
1: So what happened was that uh, he, he showed up uh, to uh, his uh, Michelle Robinson, who was Sid's kind of girlfriend at the time. He showed up to the house because they're having a nice little party. They're having a a spaghetti bolognese dinner that uh, Sid's mother, Anne, was making well, with some help with some friends. And uh, <laughs> Jerry was just there. Yeah. That's all it was. He was there. He d- he hardly knew uh, Sid Vicious. Uh, he did kind of heckle him at a Max's Kansas show once, uh, just earlier Probably that week. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he he saw the guy, he saw Sid Vicious just coming in and out of consciousness. And then he just eventually left because he barely knew the guy. Of course, feeling bad that maybe he could have done something about it. Yeah. But at that point, he, you don't you don't know what's going on. And yeah. and he was surrounded by his mom and friends. So he he, yeah, he, he, walked, he walked away from that, but he became good friends with Anne Beverly, Sid Vicious's mom.
3: Yeah. I mean I guess he later found out that Anne Beverly was a terrible mother. <laughs> <laughs>
1: really deep into drugs but by, by then like Jerry Only and Anne Beverly kind of formed a, a bit of a friendship you know he did like drive her and some friends all the way down to Philadelphia so she can spread Sid's ashes over Nancy Spongin's grave
3: against the wishes of the Spungen family
1: yeah I know <laughs> you can hear it all in the episode
3: <laughs> Yeah.
1: and there's that story that Anne Beverly came to the studio while they were recording horror business which apparently is not true but some people say it is. Some people say it's not.
3: Uh-huh. I
1: think it's unlikely.
3: I think it's highly unlikely. I think Jerry invited her, but she <laughs> never came.
1: I don't know. She was busy mourning.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and during this time, the misfit stage appearance was more and more mirroring the horror of their music. Danzig started painting his face to look more like the Crimson Ghost, and both Bobby Steele and Jerry only created the look of the punk zombie.
1: That's true. Glenn would wear his skeleton shirt for live shows, you know, and even skeleton gloves sometimes. Like, uh, you know, they painted like black gloves painted white. So, you know, in, in case his mom was wondering where she put her black leather gloves, <laughs> uh, there's your answer.
3: <laughs> they look cool as shit. Like the 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 punk zombie look is fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, the, like the look that Jerry only uh, created is classic. It's fucking great.
1: Oh, yeah. I love it.
3: But perhaps the most famous of misfits looks, sported by multiple members of the band at different times in their career, was what came to be known as the devil lock.
1: Ooh. I don't know. (laughs) Jerry only started that. Yeah. Yeah. Jerry used to have fairly short uh, like, hair, uh, electric blue hair, he said. And as his hair got longer, he would just slick the front part, something he started to call the tidal wave. Mm. Because it was blue. I get it. Yeah. And then it got really long. So that part of his hair just started hanging out down in front. And Jerry decided to dye his hair black. And that was it. He would use Vaseline, he said, just to keep his hair in place. That front part, that lock, Mm -hmm. that hair lock right in front of his face. Because hairspray would burn his eyes. Oh, could you imagine him just trying it Uh over? and Oh, fuck. (laughs) Fuck. Vaseline's the way to go. (laughs) and glenn said that somebody's mother came up with the name devil lock
5: yeah
6: and
1: he also heard that there is an afghan tribe who called it devil lock and they wear their hair like that
3: Aww,
1: what a great myth
3: (laughs) oh yeah the devil lock is just i mean it is one strip of hair that goes down to a point to the bridge of the nose yes right in the middle of the forehead yeah so sometimes longer depending on who's wearing the devil lock So by 1979, the Misfits had begun to establish themselves as the band who married horror to punk, and their reputation was only strengthened when Bobby Steele puked all over John Lennon's shoes seconds after introducing himself at the Mug Club.
1: I heard that's false.
3: You heard you heard that's false. I
1: heard that's false, but according to Bobby, he said that uh, it happened in July fourth, nineteen seventy nine. How he remembers that date?
3: <laughs> well, I, I would remember the date I threw up on John Lennon's shoes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so this is at the Mud Club. He said that John Lennon showed up there, and Bobby was partying with his friends, taking lots of quaaludes and drinking tons of Long Island iced teas. So naturally, he blacked out. Yeah. And so he was put into like a booth, like, you know, what are those the table with the booth, of course. Mm -hmm. And he and they put him there just to lay him down and be like, we'll call you a cab. And then he just blacked out completely. And then later, like as he's coming out and being dragged out, taken into a cab, they're like, dude, you just threw up on John Lennon's (laughs) shoes. You just did, man. And he's like, whoa, really? That's that's crazy, man. It's crazy. That's what he said.
3: That's what he said. Well, it only seemed natural that the Misfits would delve deeper into the world of horror movies for further inspiration. And they did it best on a song inspired by one of Danzig's favorite films, Night of the Living Dead. (laughs) Can beat that whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's just like that.
3: <laughs> but once the Misfits fully established their aesthetic, it followed that they'd start playing what used to be my favorite shows to play back when I played in bands. Needless to say, the Misfits fucking owned Halloween.
1: Oh, yes! Yes, I, it all kind of started when Glenn and Jerry started hanging out at the Monster Movie Club, uh, which started like sometime in 1979 at Club 57 on St. Mark's Place. So. What happened is that Susan Hannaford, she she ran the movie nights. So every Tuesday night, she would put on like an old school horror movie. And Glenn and Jerry would come in with Howie Pyro from, you know, The Blast. So like they Mm -hmm. would come in and they would just lay down on the floor and watch the movies and chat up Susan and just, you know, just have a good time. And then Susan hosted, like as the Monster Movie Club, hosted two Halloween balls at Irving Plaza in 1979 and 1980, which... Of course, the misfits were invited to play. Yeah. So the first Halloween show they did was 1979, Irving Plaza. They released the Night of the Living Dead on uh, uh, on Halloween. That day, they sold it for two dollars each. Nice. Yeah. And they did a show there. They, I mean, they, decorate, they decorated the whole space uh, with rubber bats, uh, skeletons, jack-o'-lanterns, you know, kind of like what, uh, you know, the the last podcast network did a few years back in LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Sam Our, Hain uh, show.
3: Yeah, yeah. That was fucking great.
1: Yeah. So, like, that. that's what not they- Sam,
3: Not Sam Hain, the ball Sam Hain. No. The, the holiday. The
1: holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and like, you know, putting on their, their, their super cool spooky skeleton costumes and everything and just jumping out there. I mean, they- own Halloween, they yeah. they just do.
3: They absolutely, yeah, and they, and they did for many years after, didn't the next year at Irving Plaza? Wasn't that the year that they hung
1: dead animals?
3: Dead animals, yeah, and that did happen.
1: I believe that happened, yeah, and it, and it stunk <laughs> up the whole place.
3: Yeah, they said it. Yeah, Glenn is just like smelled like a slaughterhouse, looked like a slaughterhouse. <laughs> <Like, laughs> very good, but he said it with a smile, like it was a weird fond memory of his.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that day was also when they uh decided to open for business with their with their misfits fiend club yeah you know it's kind of like the, their fan club where fans could write to them and uh the fans would receive like free buttons uh stickers eps um t-shirts i mean well not free t-shirts i mean you get a mail order form to buy a t-shirt for like only seven bucks that like danzig would make himself in the basement of of his parents apartment ah. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you get so much shit. He said even, like, if, if a fan would write, like, long pages about how much they loved us, we would give him even extra shit.
3: Yeah, the Misfits are fucking great to their fans. Yes. Like, that's what I've... I, again and again, like, I, I've read, you know, Misfits fans saying, like, I met Glenn Danzig, and he was the nicest fucking guy. You know, or I met... And we met Jerry only. Yeah. And he was the nicest fucking dude. And we didn't even talk to him about the Misfits. We just did, were... We just... It was a very odd situation. It was weird. It was was a weird night that we can't really go into. We
1: can't really talk about it.
3: (laughs) It was just this party. For reasons that we just, we have our reasons why we can't talk about it. But it's just, yeah, it was a weird night. But he was there and he was uh, exceedingly nice. Yeah, I mean,
1: like, they would be nothing without their fans. And I think they greatly appreciated that every single day that they worked in the Misfits.
3: Yeah, like, I can't remember who was talking about it, like, you know, As far as, like, their fans go and, you know, how the fan base was created, like, an interviewer asked, either Jerry Only or Glenn Danzig, like, when did the cult following start? Like, when did the cult following of the Misfits start? And they're like, immediately.
1: Immediately.
6: (laughs)
3: Day one.
1: Day one, person one, mom. (laughs) Day two, ten more
3: people. Who knows? I mean, they were able to bring people to their shows, though. Like, those uh, CBGB shows, those showcase shows, like, they brought their fans. You know, like friends, but friends (laughs) turn into that's how it always works. Friends turn into fans. Your friends are always your first fans. Uh, So if you're doing a show and it's just your friends showing up, fucking keep going. That's great. That's great. Like, at least you got them showing up. At least you got that. Um, But, you know, even though the Misfits seem to be on a steady upward trajectory things would soon start falling apart for the original lineup. And there's still one more very important Misfit to introduce. And that's what we'll cover, along with the decades of bickering that followed, (laughs) on The Misfits Part 2. Ooh! Yeah! (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Ooh!
1: That's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to do Bella Lugosi and spooky voices the whole fucking time. (laughs) Which is great. This is what I've always wanted. Blah. <laughs> is that like Belial?
3: <laughs> blah. No, that's Belial. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah I mean like as we said before Like we're definitely going to cover their, their punk era yeah. Most of all Because that is the most important stuff I mean uh, of course they get a little litigious And there's a, a lot of back and forth on that But you know sometimes when you really read into these things They get a little bit boring So we're just going to make yeah. it as simple as humanly possible
3: it gets tedious. Yeah, yeah. It get, it gets really it gets really tedious after a while. So we're, we're really we're focusing on the music. We're focusing on the early years, uh, and uh, yeah, that's what we're going to be getting into uh, next week. Woo. So uh, this week's No Dogs in Space band. Oh yes, this is one that uh, Carolina chose, and I wholeheartedly put my fucking stamp of approval on this guy's fucking crate.
1: So this guy has an amazing musical project uh, called Spiritual Warfare and the Greasy Shadow.
3: So fucking good. God, I love this. It is so
1: good. I mean, it has got a lot of, uh, you know, inspired by oldies, do up, Bollywood, Exotica, Garage. I mean, the guy comes on wearing a costume. Uh, he's from uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, he's a FedEx driver. <laughs> he's great. He's great. I mean, this yeah. is this is a fan. I mean, I I, I fell in love with this immediately. I, I remember I ran over to you. and was like, we should play this.
3: Yeah, yeah. She ran over, over to me and I and put it on my fucking ears, and I immediately felt like I immediately said like, this is fantastic. Like, if you're into the old like exotica stuff, like Ima Sumac uh, and all that old weird shit, you know, from the '50s and '60s. He's like, this guy fucking nails it. Uh, the song, uh, of course, his stuff is available on uh, Spotify, Spiritual Warfare, and The Greasy Shadows. He's also got a lot of stuff on uh, Bandcamp. I know Bandcamp right now is doing a thing where they're giving uh, all of the commission to the artist. They do this every once in a while where 100% of the commission goes to the artist. So, right now, if you really want to support your favorite local bands, your favorite unsigned acts, uh, now is the time to now do it. Now is a good
1: time if you can do it.
3: Now is the time.
1: And also, if, if you also have like a music project or a band and you've been working in a band for years or even if you just started, it doesn't even matter. You can always send your submissions at no space at gmail.com and we do check them out. It takes a while. It takes uh, a while. Unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, we've been going through a lot of emails and thank you so much for the kind words and the submissions. I mean, we're, we're having so much fun checking this out anyways.
3: So much fun. It's so fucking, it's so great to hear hear how creative uh the people who listen to the show are and uh it's so great to hear that there are people out there like still making good weird uh original shit like it's it's very heartening um yeah. so thank you everybody to uh sent things in so far uh and uh please enjoy spiritual warfare and the greasy shadows see you next time everybody
1: goodbye